Hope you have your Bibles. Look with me in Romans chapter 8. God's help we're going to consider verses 12 to 17. As we come to the text this morning, I want us to bring something with us. I want us to bring with us to the Bible the awareness, the recognition that one of the most difficult things to do spiritually is remember who we are. We forget it. It it passes through us like water through a sieve. We find ourselves from time to time acting not in accord with who we truly are, as the Bible says it, but we find ourselves acting in accord with culture, politics, feelings. We find ourselves acting as if we are defined by the opinions of our coworkers, our friends at school, any number of other sources. And so the habit of coming back to the Bible and reminding ourselves of who we are is actually quite necessary. Because from day to day and moment to moment, we're getting a million messages about who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to feel, where we're supposed to go. None of it in reference to what God has said. We started this series because one of the things that I think we characteristically forget or we think about poorly is who we are with regard to the Holy Spirit's life and ministry in our lives. Some of us think about it too little, too seldom. Some of us are nervous about thinking about the Holy Spirit because we we think about all of the excesses or things that have scared us when we've seen people in the name of the Spirit doing all kinds of things. Others of us think about the Holy Spirit all the time, or so we think, and and we think about the the gifts of the Spirit and subjective experiences with the Spirit, and I'm convinced that many of such persons, not all of them, but many such persons, though they're thinking about the Spirit, are not thinking about the deepest work of the Spirit. So whether we find ourselves on one end or the other end of that spectrum, we all have need to think biblically and carefully and more deeply about God's presence in our lives. To think about his deep work in our lives. And little could be more more deeper. (laughs) Little could be more deep than what the Spirit does in giving us a new identity informing in us the likeness of Christ in changing us from fallen, broken people into whole, godly people. As an argument happening in Romans chapter 8, the argument at its broadest point is, is very simply this. We need the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us Christians. More specifically, thus far, Paul has made three points. He's made three statements that have built up to the text this morning. Number one, he's told us in verse one, now there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So one thing you need to know about your identity if you're a Christian is you are not among the condemned. You're among the forgiven. And he goes on to say this, now, if you have the Spirit, then your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. You're not preoccupied with the flesh. You're not driven by the world. Your whole mindset, your whole frame of being is driven and set on spiritual things. So that renewal work has already began in your head, so to speak, in your heart, 
And then as we saw last week, that verses 9 to 11, Paul comes along a little bit later and says, now, if you've got the Spirit, and if you're a Christian, you do have the Spirit, because there's no way to be a Christian without the Spirit. If you've got the Spirit, what you are experiencing is increasing levels of life. Your body's dead because of sin, but you get life because of righteousness. And oh, by the way, before it's all over, the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead who lives in you is going to raise even your mortal body in glory to be conformed to the likeness of God. This is the work of the spirit. And we come now to verses 12 to 17, which are built upon verses uh, 1 through 11. And the main point I want to suggest to you is this, that our identity, who we really are, is determined by the Holy Spirit, who does three things. Number one, makes us alive. Number two, convinces us of our adoption in Christ. And number three, assures us of our salvation. If you just want to turn that into a biographical statement, what this means is, is if you're a Christian, is that you're alive, you're adopted, and you ought to be assured. This is how we should think of ourselves. This is what should shape our self-perception and our action in the world. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Three aspects of our Christian identity. Number one, we're alive. You see that in verses 12 to 13. In Europe during the Middle Ages, people were sometimes sent to what were called debtor's prisons. These are prisons for people who got into debt and couldn't pay their debt. And so they were locked up in a cell, a large cell, with all the other people who were in debt and couldn't pay their debt. And those prisons were marked by disease and abuse. Many people starved in those conditions. Many people were abused by their fellow prisoners. Meanwhile, if, for example, a father were locked up in a debtor's prison, then whatever trade or whatever business that they had that supported their family, that suffered. So usually wives and children suffered as a consequence of of this debt or fell into poverty. And sometimes people would be in these debtor's prisons for years. And if they weren't kept there for years, sometimes they would be let out, but only as, as serfs or indentured servants or slaves in order to work off their debt. Around the mid-1800s, debtor's prisons were supposedly outlawed. 
countries like the United States and others. But here's what I want you to know, beloved. Life without Jesus is a debtor's prison. It's a debtor's prison. Without Jesus, verse 12 is telling us, we feel indebted to the flesh. We feel we have to fulfill whatever the flesh desires. Therefore, we are imprisoned by the sin nature. We find ourselves in a spiritual debtor's prison. And one of the most significant mistakes that people make with regard to their identity is thinking that somehow the impulses and desires of their body is what makes them who they are. Beloved, you are more than your appetites. You are more than your desires. If you allow and I allow our desires to define us and to drive us, they will then determine us. But there's good news. The text says we are debtors, beloved. But notice, not to the flesh. In other words, we don't owe the flesh nothing. We don't owe the flesh consideration. We don't owe the flesh respect. We don't owe the flesh submission. We don't owe the flesh honor. We ain't called to please the flesh, entertain the flesh, support the flesh, serve the flesh, respect the flesh, nothing. It's because of Jesus. We've been freed from the tyranny of the flesh. We are not reduced to slavery, to the body of death. Now, if you're a Christian, that's a fact about you. Verse 12 is not a command, it's a fact. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to its desires. You're a debtor, but you're a debtor to grace. You're a debtor to God. You're a debtor to His Spirit. And here's the tragedy, beloved. Here's the tragedy. Some people are living only to die. See what Paul says there in the beginning of verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Think of your family members. Think of your co-workers. Think of your friends who can't wait to the next weekend, the next party, the next outing. The next thing that is worldly and sinful, that is in accord with the flesh, which they think of as as the party, and and they think of as life. And they say, man, this is really living. I'm living for what I can buy. I'm living for what power I can get. I'm living for whatever relationship I can be in. And they're thinking, this is really living. They are living by the flesh, which means they are living only to die. For if we live by the flesh, write it down, make it plain, we will die. The Bible's matter of fact about it. Fleshly living is spiritual suicide. Now, it's really important, beloved, this morning that we hear, accept, and believe the Bible on this point. Tim Keller refers sometimes to what he calls defeated beliefs. These are beliefs that people have in their mind that that actually sort of defeat the truth of Scripture. It keeps them from hearing the truth of Scripture. And so um, you have to sort of, as an apologist, deal with that defeater belief. Now, I am convinced this morning in a room this size that one defeater belief in this room 
is that you actually think it's boring to be a Christian and life is had by living contrary to what the Bible says. That some of you think the world party's better than the church. That some of you think that fun and joy and life is better had in some way that looks different from what appears to you and feels to you to be the restrictions and the burdens and the enslavement and the pressure of the Bible. And so when you hear the Bible say, if you live according to the flesh and you think the flesh is how you have fun, and you hear the Bible say, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, in your mind you're like, nah. You're like, it ain't that serious. I'll get with Jesus later. All my Christian friends are boring. My non-Christian friends, they know how to hang. They're not judging me. They're not condemning me. They're not telling me what I ought to be doing with my life. They're going to hell too, beloved, if they don't repent. The path to destruction is wide. The path to life is narrow and straight, and few there be who find it. And we as professing Christians have found the path. It's marked Christ. And we as professing Christians now have been freed from the flesh. It kills. We recognize that. We must accept that. And we have been now made alive by the Spirit. See, because while some people are living to die, other people are dying to live. Look at the second part of verse 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The contrast cannot be more clear. There's some stuff we got to kill. And the, and the ironic thing is this. When we kill it, we find ourselves living. See what the text says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, two observations real quickly. You got to kill the deeds of your body. That ain't Pastor T's job. That ain't your roommate's job. That ain't your spouse's job. That ain't your friend's job. You got to be active in putting to death the misdeeds of the body, the temptations of the flesh, the sinful desires of the sin nature. You got to drive a stake through his heart. You've got to crucify it every day. But now here's the second thing you got to notice in this text. You don't do that by your own strength. If, notice, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. There's somebody else at work with you in this process. That is God himself, the third person of the Trinity. He is the one who is animating, motivating, and making effective the attempt to put to death sin. Let me put it to you another way. True mortification, that's the fancy theological word for killing sin. True mortification happens by the Spirit, not by carnal or fleshly weapons, not by the law and self-effort and self-improvement, not by secular philosophy or psychology. Only by the Spirit do we effectively kill sin in us and at the same time receive life. Now, self-effort has its place because you must kill it. I believe in common grace, so psychology and counseling has its place. But its place is not in the place of the Holy Spirit. It's not in the place of God. That's idolatry, beloved. 
And this is why if we are depending upon those things, rather than God, rather than the strength that God gives, rather than the wisdom that God gives by His Spirit, we are exhausted and frustrated and defeated when that sin comes around again. One more thing to notice about this text. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's present continuous in the Greek. In other words, killing your sin ain't something I do or you do one time and then we're done with it. The, the flesh is stubborn. He keep coming back. He'd be like, I lost that one, but I'll be back next week. I'm going to check in on you in a month. And the flesh just keeps coming back. And so you got to keep stabbing that rascal. You got to keep killing that rascal. You got to keep putting him to death. And beloved, again, we would be exhausted and frustrated were it not for the presence and power of the Spirit guiding us in this. Some people are dying to live. For the Christian, mortification leads to vivification. He's to making us alive. That's the deep work of the Holy Spirit. He kills something in us without actually killing us. Puts to death our sin and makes alive our spirit. This week, a member of the church family wrote me a very encouraging note of testimony regarding the Spirit's work in their life. I asked for and received permission to share a section of the letter. They, they wrote about a particular sin that has been a constant struggle, quote, since my youth. And that struggle continues even after giving my life to Christ. Anybody else know that? Amen. I tried to battle this specific sin in my own strength, and no surprise, I failed constantly. However, with the recent preaching on spirit-filled living, there has been a paradigm shift. And the realization or understanding that the Holy Spirit is a person has really blessed me. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And it should be used to glorify God, not fulfill its sinful lust. The illustration that comes to mind is the fact that there would be no temptation to my sin if my mother, father, or friend was standing there. And it dawned on me. How much more should I esteem the presence of the Holy Spirit? He is forever present. And when I sin, he is grieved. I cannot stand the thought. Yet and still, he remains and sanctifies and convicts. It's been about a month since I last fell to this sin. And by God's grace, this has been the longest period of time I have not fallen to the lust of my flesh. The preaching... The possibility of discipline in another member's situation and my small group have impacted me more than words can describe. Praise be to God. This member, amen, brother, amen. This member is receiving life from the Spirit as the Spirit puts to death his sin. And many things I love about this testimony, but let me draw our attention to one in particular. This testimony illustrates how the Spirit puts sin to death. The, the member mentions preaching, church discipline, and small group fellowship and encouragement. 
It's through the Word of God and the fellowship of God's people that the Spirit most often does His work. In our battle with sin and with the flesh, we need to ask ourselves the question, are, are we using the weapons that the Holy Spirit Himself uses? Are we sitting under God's Word? Are we gathering with God's people, the whole family on a Sunday morning and in smaller collections through the week? And by that fellowship in His Word, are we finding life as our sin is put to death? Mortification leads to vivification. When we kill sin, we find life. This is not living to die, but dying to live. As one commentator put it, there is a living that is death, and there is a putting to death that is life. Which are you experiencing this morning? Are you living only to die, or are you dying to live? True Christians are dying to live, dying to the flesh, the misdeeds of the body, in order to live by the Spirit. First thing we need to know about ourselves if we are Christians is that we are alive. We are alive by the Spirit. There's a second thing. We're also adopted. We're adopted into the family of God. The Spirit works in us to kill sin and give us life. But more than that, the Spirit proves another aspect of our identity. That God has adopted us as His children. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15. Look there with me. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And there are two types of evidence in this, these two verses. There is a, a, a kind of external evidence, and there is an internal evidence. The external evidence is there in verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. In other words, one proof of your adoption as a son or daughter of God is that you are led by the Spirit of God in crucifying your sin and living a righteous life. The adopted sons of God are all, notice, led by the Spirit of God. They all have God as their Father. Every Christian, it is as if they were walking down the street as little children, hand in hand with their Father. He leads us. And that leading of the Spirit is a kind of external evidence. Leon Morris writes this in his commentary on Romans. The work of the Spirit is not an optional extra for the advanced Christian. Being led by the Spirit is a mark of all God's people. Now I want you to notice something. Adoption comes before leading. It's not that you seek to be led by the Spirit... And then consequently, God adopts you. It's the other way around. God first adopts us and then gives us his spirit to lead us. We exist first as adopted children. Then we experience the Holy Spirit's guiding. And this applies to all who are led by the Spirit. There are none who are led by the Spirit that are not adopted sons. The only way you can be led by the Spirit is to be adopted by God the Father. So now this is what this means, real practically. If you've ever sensed the Spirit's leading in your life, that is evidence 
that you are an adopted son or daughter of God. That is the fruit of adoption, not the root of adoption. But I love God. He doesn't just leave us with external evidence. The verse goes on and tells us about internal evidence as well. Notice verse 15 again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now remember the logic here. With sin comes death. And with death comes fear. According to Hebrews 2, 15, Jesus came to deliver all those uh, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 John chapter 4 mentions that God is love, that he's perfect love, and he saved us in his love. And Christians are those who know and rely on the love that God has for them, and they find God living in them. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, here's the punchline that John gives. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John's making the same argument in different words that Paul has made. You remember how Paul starts this chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no fear of judgment, there's no fear of hell, there's no fear of being cast off. Why? Because Christ has brought us the Father's love, the Father's perfect love, and perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment, which is death. So, if you're a Christian, We are not supposed to be fearful of death and judgment because of Jesus' work on the cross and in the resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. We did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Perfect love has cast out fear. We have a different spirit altogether, or we should as Christians. Notice now the second part of verse 15, the contrast. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So internally, The spirit of fear and slavery are removed and replaced with the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption. And that same spirit causes us to cry out. Now, there's some ambiguity there. It could be cry out in in joy or just it could be another word for prayer. But in either case, this spirit, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit and it prompts us to, to call God Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Because it's the spirit of adoption. And we who are Christ have been adopted into the Father's family. Now, in ancient Judaism, there really is no practice of adoption. The word adoption does not occur in the Old Testament at all. It occurs five times in the New Testament, three times here in Romans. It's really a a Pauline understanding of what it is to be a Christian. And Paul is borrowing from the, the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman laws where adoption really is quite common. And here's what he has in mind. 
quote again another scholar, he has in mind that adoption signifies being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. This is a good illustration of one aspect of Paul's understanding of what it means to become a Christian. The believer is admitted to the heavenly family to which he has no rights of his own, but he is now admitted and can call God Father. So all the rights and privileges of being a member of God's family has been given to all of us who through faith in Christ have been adopted by the Spirit. So rather than live in the with the fear of being rejected by God or separated from Him, the Spirit testifies to our inner man that we belong to God like children chosen and kept forever through adoption. The Holy Spirit has become to us an internal witness that yells in the soul, Abba, Father. If you're here this morning and you are sure God is your Father, and your heart rejoices at the thought. I want you to take note that that's the Spirit of God at work in your life. You didn't just make up that identity. You didn't just choose that identity for yourself. You can't adopt yourself into God's family. God sent His Spirit to testify to you that you belong to Him. That is the Spirit's work in the Christian's life. If that is you, beloved, if you know that with some certainty, you should praise and thank God for His work in your life. That inward evidence of the Father's adoption. When my daughters were young, two, three, four, five, I come home from work and Christy had done this wonderful thing that mothers sometimes do. She had sort of trained and taught the girls to come greet me at the door. And I come home and open the door, and uh, they hear the key in the door. I can hear them on the other side of the door. Daddy's home. Daddy's home. And they run and come to the door and, and jump into my arms and be hanging all on me. Welcome home, Daddy. How was your day, Daddy? You know, and I'm carrying them. It was, it, it was wonderful. My son Titus would greet me at the door when he was two or three or four, a little bit differently. He'd greet me like a boy. i come in the house. He wouldn't say, Daddy's home. He'd kind of walk over to where I was, punch me in the leg and run. <laughs> it meant the same thing. Daddy's home. Daddy's home. <laughs> there was something about the knowledge of their father being with them that excited them to cry out, Daddy, Daddy. Daddy. And it's a parable for the Christian and our Heavenly Father. There's something about the knowledge of the Father's love and presence with us which makes us cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. If you have that assurance, praise your Father, praise the Son, praise the Holy Spirit. Now this morning if you're here and you're not sure or you struggle to understand and to know God is your Father, then, beloved, this is an area where you need more of the Spirit's work. 
where you want this testimony of the Spirit playing itself out in your life. Now, let me tell you, when we talk about the deep work of the Spirit, one of the deepest works of the Spirit is to help us through our daddy pain, to help us through our father absence, to help us through the failings of our natural dads, which have marked so many of us. But praise God, our heavenly father ain't nothing like our earthly daddy. And so it is the Spirit's deep work to sort of heal those hurts of absent dads, hard dads, mean dads, abusive dads, and to change our hearts such that we are able to respond to a perfectly loving Father who only gives us good gifts and to make us sure of His love and His adoption. Now, here's the thing. When my girls ran to the door yelling, Daddy, it wasn't just them being excited. On the other side of the door, I was excited. Long day at work. All kinds of meetings. All kinds of reports written. Sometimes arguments with coworkers. Then a long uh, commute from I Street down to Dumfries. And I get to the door, and on the other side, I hear my daughters yelling, Daddy, Daddy. And my heart delighted to be called Dad to be recognized and to be welcome. Or to come in the door and see my little boy, my only son, all boy, showing that he was all boy with a quick punch and a quick sprint. It's like, that's my boy. In the same way, God's not far from us with a distant cold heart. His heart is eager to be called Abba. And he is eager to make us sure that we have been adopted. So now if you struggle with this, here's, here's, here's what you need to do. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you by testifying to you of the Father's adoption, and of the Father's love, and of the Father's delight in you. He is not resistant to that. He wants us to know that. He wants us to know it immediately and internally, and he wants it to be seen externally as the Spirit leads us by the hand. Which brings us to the third thing. We are not only alive, and we're not only adopted, but Paul has been working his way up to another doctrine. We are also assured. We are also assured of our salvation. The Spirit kills our sin and makes us alive. The Spirit witnesses externally and internally that we have been adopted as children. Now the Spirit assures us that we are Christians. Look with me in verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may, be, may also be glorified with him. Assurance is a deep work of the Spirit. Listen, beloved, nothing could be more important than that we know that we know that we know that we belong to Christ. Nothing could be more profoundly settling and comforting and hope-giving than being absolutely sure that what Jesus has done for us on the cross is actually mine personally. That personal, deep, and stable, and comforting confidence that we call assurance 
is the work of God's Spirit, communicating to us that all that Jesus is and all that Jesus does is ours through faith in Him. Which would you rather have? The full assurance of your salvation every day or the periodic, unexplained, unusual, supernatural experience with God. The deep work of the Spirit is not just that He shows up unexpectedly and supernaturally and wonderfully sometimes in a miracle or something that we could never have programmed. Beloved, the deeper work of the Spirit is taking people who are sinners by nature and convincing them that they are children by adoption. Having us to be confident that once we were lost in our sin, did not know God, did not regard God, but now we belong to God, we love Him as our Father, and He loves us as His children. To be sure, to be confident, to be settled in that knowledge is the deep work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Which would you rather have? Which do you think is deeper? Now, we can desire and pray for both. I'm not knocking either. But if you had to define one as the deeper work in your life, which one would it be? Now, the answer will tell you whether or not you're chasing an experience or chasing God. Whether or not you're chasing some happening or you are looking to really commune with God regularly. Beloved, always seek the deep work of the Spirit. Don't get caught up in the temporary and comparatively secondary work of the Spirit. That's where some go wrong. Now, there's a logic in these verses that I want us to see. There's some ideas that fall one on top of the other like dominoes in a line. The first domino is assurance that we are children of God. See that there in verse 16? The Spirit continues His internal work in us. In verse 15, the Spirit calls us to cry, Abba, Father. But now in verse 16, the Spirit speaks back. The Spirit Himself bears witness. I think Paul is stunned by this. I think we're meant to be stunned by this. I think there's an emphasis him. The Spirit himself, none other than God, has come into your life, taken the witness stand of your heart, and testified to you directly that you are children of God. This is the immediate direct action of God the Holy Spirit on the human heart saying to us, you're my child. I claim you. It's another way in which our Heavenly Father is different from some earthly dads. He don't need to be arraigned for a paternity test. Ain't nobody talking about mama's babies, papa's maybe. He don't don't need to work this out in the courts. He comes right to us and says, I claim you. You're mine. You're my child. He shows up himself and bears witness to this fact. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God himself wants to convince us directly that we are his children? Not leaving it to some messenger, not leaving it to the preacher. He sends his spirit to come tell us. He wants it to be based on his own testimony. That's the first domino that falls. Notice the second domino that then falls is that word air. 
If we are a child of God, then we are guaranteed heirs of God. Now remember, Paul has in mind the sort of Greek and Roman laws about adoption. Here's something I found out that's really helpful about adoption in that day. Once you are adopted, you can't be unadopted. Once you are adopted, you cannot be disinherited. You cannot be written out of the will. You cannot be left out uh, of the estate. If you are adopted according to Greek and Roman law, then you have the full rights as sons in that family. About five people know when to shout. (laughs) And that's true of us as Christians. We are heirs, no matter what. No matter what goes on, we forever will be a part of God's family and we will have a share in God's kingdom. Now, the dominoes keep falling because the next domino that falls is that we are fellow heirs with Christ. We don't get a lesser part of the estate. We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus gets, we get. We're going to share in his glory. We're going to share in his beauty. We're going to be transformed into his likeness. All that the natural son of God, the only begotten son of God, has as God the Father's unique son, we now as adopted children share in as the one that God has redeemed by his blood. That's very good news, beloved. I mean, we would be happy to be doorkeepers in the kingdom of God. I, don't, I guess it's angels who keep in the doors because we come in as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. I don't know who's watching the gates, but we're going to be inside enjoying the fullness of the kingdom as those who rule together with God over the kingdom, as those who have a share, a full share, a co-inheritance with Christ. That's who you are. Heirs and co-heirs with Christ. But now it would be so nice to stop with that third domino. It's one more domino to fall. It's always that last domino. It includes a condition. Did you notice Notice it? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's another marker of our identity. We are people chosen for affliction. We're going to suffer in this world. Jesus says we would suffer in this world if we identify with him, that the world would would hate us. The world itself has fallen, so we we will suffer from the fallenness of the world. But here now, Paul draws our attention to the necessity of us suffering with him, that is, with him. Jesus. This isn't any mere suffering. This is the suffering of witnesses. This is the suffering of children who don't walk away ashamed when their big brother uh, is suffering. And we hear these words and we think back to the Gospels where Jesus says something like this, if you are ashamed of me before men on earth, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. But the verse is really quite interesting. He says now, provided that we suffer with him, but now notice this, in order. The suffering is producing something. The suffering is working something out. The suffering is not for nothing. The suffering has a purpose, provided we suffer with him in order now that we may also be glorified with him. Beloved, your suffering is producing for you glory together with Christ. 
Every reproach we bear for Jesus, every insult we bear for Jesus, every bodily harm we suffer for Jesus, every social alienation we suffer for Jesus, it is working for us now glory with Jesus, honor with Jesus. It is working for us the beauty of Jesus on that day when we see him and share it with him. Don't ever shrink back from suffering with Christ. It will feel natural. It will feel wise. It will feel easy. It will feel a hundred things. But don't pull back if it is the question of identifying with Jesus because that is your identity. You have been made alive. You have been adopted in the family. And God has assured you that you are his child. Stand up for the family name. Rep the family name. Even if it brings suffering and affliction and hardship and when it does, remember, it's in order that you would also share in his glory with him. On the other side of suffering, beloved, on the other side of every cross that we bear for Christ, is glory. Just as there's on the other side of Christ's cross, is glory. We are not to think the kingdom of heaven is a wide downhill road. It is a narrow way with many dangers, but it is worth it, eternally worth it. Christian, know your identity. You're alive in the spirit, not a debtor to the flesh. You are adopted into God's family. You've not been given a spirit of slavery and fear. You are and can be the fully assured child of God. God wants you to know that you are secure in his hands. Seek the Spirit for this deep work. If at any point along that way, alive, adopted, assured, or even afflicted, you need more comfort for the Spirit from the Spirit, Ask him for it. He delights to give it. And my friend, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, our invitation to you is to come join God's family. Our invitation to you is to, to come and confess your sins to God, sins he already knows about, and, and more than that, sins he's already taken care of. Did you know your sins are fully taken care of in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross? You're not a debtor to pay off a debt. Jesus paid the debt for you. This is why we are free as Christians. This is why we are forgiven as Christians. Come on out of that prison of the flesh, that prison of sinful desire, and look to Jesus, who has freed us from that dungeon in the sacrifice of himself and his resurrection from the grave. Believe in him. That means to put your trust in him, to put the, the full weight of your life and your soul into his hands and to say, my life is yours. You bought it with your blood. You were raised from the grave for my justification. I believe all of that happened and I believe it happened for me. And then ask God by his spirit to give you grace to follow him in faith and obedience that comes from faith. Ask God by his spirit to assure you, to testify to you that you are his child, that he has adopted you 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Ask God to tell you that he claims you, that you're his child, and you're in his family. He won't play games with that. He will come to you, and he will rescue you from judgment, and he will give you a new life as an adopted child, fully assured, even if you have to suffer for it. And it'll be worth it. Believe on Christ and be saved. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to have a moment of silence. I'd encourage you to take these next several minutes to to seek the Lord, to call upon Him, to ask Him to save you from judgment to come if you're not yet saved, or to ask Him to give you assurance of your salvation if, if you're not yet sure, or to simply praise Him if you know you're saved and you know His assurance. Use these next few moments in song and in quiet to seek the Holy Spirit and His deep work in your life. And then when we conclude, if you want to talk to someone further about what all this means, uh, see me, see Pastor, Pastor George, um, Pastor Dennis, talk with the Christian friend who brought you. We like nothing more than to see you become a member of God's family. Not just our church, but of God's family. That's what's important. Let's pray together.